A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will, see, well, you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that, excuse me, in that day you will also not, you will also, excuse me, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you, it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said this, these things, to, to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and, now using figure and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you. In the name of Jesus, and Lord, even as we just sang, the, the cry of our hearts is come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and bring your salvation plan to its full fruition. We long for that day when you return, Jesus, and make all things truly new. Lord, until that day, we ask that you would keep us faithful. As we come to your word, that is our desire, that we would, that we would see you and that in seeing you, we would have the power to follow you and remain faithful to you, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we, as we come to your word today, we just invite your voice to be our teacher. Would you give us the humility to sit at your feet, Lord Jesus, and receive from your word? Even if it disagrees with our opinions, Lord, may we be willing to submit to your authority and your goodness. And Lord, we ultimately pray that as we leave this gathering today, that we would leave more worshiping you for who you are and what you've done. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever felt like everything would just be way better if you could just know the future? Have you ever had that feeling before? I know you have. 
I, I have this feeling often where I just feel like, man, if I could just know what's going to happen in the future, everything right now would be way easier, right? Maybe you've had this experience before. Maybe you just, you took a really big test and you're like awaiting the results and you're so on edge and you're so anxious. Like, what's it going to be? If you could just know the outcome, everything would be fine. Or I have this experience often where I'm watching uh, a sporting event that I'm invested in and I care about. And because we stream everything, it's usually like a few seconds behind the actual game. So if I'm really stressed, I'm like, I wish I could just know what happens and I don't have to live through the stress. I'll pull out my phone and be like, I can check the score now to see what happens instead of waiting for it. And that will be less stressful for me. Anybody ever done that? No. (laughs) Or sometimes there's just really nerve wracking things that we go through. We are just so anxious, not knowing what's going to happen. And we feel like if we could, it would be better. Maybe we've experienced having a loved one that's come down with a very serious sickness and we just don't know how it's going to turn out. And we just feel like, man, if I could just know that everything's going to be okay, then things would be better for me. Or maybe you're waiting on a phone call from a friend or a doctor waiting on some important news. Or maybe you're in the midst of some really deep relational conflict and you don't know how it's going to turn out and it just stresses you out and fills you with anxiety and we just feel like, man, if I could just know what's going to happen, things would be better. And I remember as a kid sometimes thinking, man, if I, if I could know the future, that would be awesome. Right? All the things I would do with that knowledge of, of what's going to happen in the future, I could, I could impress all of my friends with my knowledge and predictions or I could you know, do like back to the future style and go bet on some games and make a fortune because I know what's going to actually happen. But the truth is, we know that if we knew the future truly, it actually probably wouldn't be good for us. We can imagine the ways that that would be cool, but we can also, it's not hard for us to imagine the ways that that would be really stressful. That if we knew the future, what was going to happen, that that could actually cause us a lot of anxiety. All right, if I told you today, hey, at some point today in your future, somebody's going to throw a dodgeball and hit you in the face. You would spend the rest of your day like on the lookout, like when is that dodgeball coming? Or like, or some point in the next six months, somebody's going to steal your car. You would be so anxious. You would be on edge everywhere you went thinking, when's this going to happen? How do I prevent it? How do I stop it? Knowing the future actually oftentimes just brings more stress and more anxiety into our lives. And here we have Jesus in John chapter 16 The night, most likely the night before he's crucified, he's in his very last moments with his disciples and Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. He knows the future, not just because he has foreknowledge of it, but because he's ordained it. He's planned it out and he sits with his disciples and he tells them the future. He tells them something that's going to happen to them and it's really heavy. He tells them that you're going to weep and lament and be filled with sorrow. That would stress me out. But in the midst of this, he tells them something that they will have in the midst of all of that that will carry them through it. He's aiming to comfort his disciples with his last few moments with them and to not just give them information, but to give them direction. For as they walk through what's about to happen, They have an anchor, they have a hope, they have a joy. And so Jesus gets into this here in verse 16. He says something that sounds a little confusing. He says, a little while you will see me no longer. And then again in a little while you'll see me again. And the disciples are are confused and they're talking among themselves like, 
What does he say? In a little while we'll see him. In a little while we, we, will, we won't see him. We, we, a long, what is he saying? What, did you catch what he said? And Jesus knows that they're kind of confused and he tries to explain it a little bit. But as we sit with this, we, we got to kind of ask, what does he mean? What does he mean that in, in a little while you won't see me and then again in a little while you will see me? There's a lot of different um, proposals that have been, been thrown out to, to kind of understand what is Jesus talking about? What is he referencing when he says, in a little while you won't see me? Some say that what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the resurrection. That Jesus is saying, in a little while I'm going to die and you won't see me. But then again, in a little while, I'll raise from the dead and you'll see me again. But I don't know if that makes the most sense here because it doesn't seem to me that Jesus would speak to their loss of him for three days only for them to then depart again. Because after he raises from the dead, he's with them for a little while and then he leaves again. So then he should have said, in a little while you'll see me and then in a, you won't see me and then in a, again in a little while you will see me and then again in a little while longer after that you won't see me again. <laughs> I don't know if he's talking about the resurrection. That seems like a real short window. Maybe he's talking about his second coming. You know, because Jesus would die on the cross and on the third day he would rise from the dead, spend 40 days with his disciples and then ascend back to heaven and promise that one day he's coming again. So maybe he's saying that in a little while you won't see me because I'm ascending to heaven. But again, in a little while I will return. Maybe that is what he's saying. But I don't know that Jesus would refer to his disciples, again, in a little while, referring to your entire lifetime and all the way up to the present day because Jesus has not yet returned. I don't know that he's saying that either. I think what Jesus is mostly saying here, what he's mostly referring to is a little bit of what we talked about last week, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. When Jesus says here, he says, in a little while, you will see me again. This phrase can be used to refer to not just external seeing, but a kind of internal seeing and understanding. This inward vision to where Jesus may essentially be saying, hey, in a little while, I'm going to die. And yes, I will raise, but, but ultimately I'm leaving you, which has been very consistent with Jesus, with what Jesus has been saying to his, his disciples chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of John. But then again in a little while, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, you will see me again. And you will really see me. You will see me with a vision, an inward vision that you have not been able to see me with yet as when the Holy Spirit comes. In other words, you, you will be able to see God through the Son in the Spirit when he comes. Essentially telling them that the promised Holy Spirit that I've been telling you about, he will bring true vision. You will be able to see me more clearly than you've ever seen me. You'll be able to experience me more fully than you've ever experienced me. And this is really consistent with how Jesus has talked about the Holy Spirit, right? As we've gone through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 14, what did he say to his disciples? He said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is talking about he, he coming to his disciples, but he's really referencing the Holy Spirit, that my presence will come to you as the Holy Spirit comes to you. Or when Jesus eventually leaves his disciples and ascends back to heaven, in the book of Matthew, we get a glimpse of what he says. What does he say? Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. But he's leaving. Ah, but through the Spirit. 
the presence of Jesus will be with them. I think Jesus is referring to the joy that comes to them as the Holy Spirit descends upon them. Not just the joy that they would experience at the resurrection when they see Jesus again after he left them, but an even greater degree of joy that they would experience as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of them after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. I think this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that there is a life-changing power to the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's people. Something even more life-changing than simply walking beside Jesus. To have Jesus in heaven, enthroned in majesty and in glory, seated at the right hand of God, our advocate, and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The life-changing power of his presence where he applies all of the good news of the gospel to our hearts. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, in a, while, in a little while you won't see me because I'm going to die and then I'm going to ascend. And it's going to be very hard for you. But again, in a little while after that, you'll see me like you've never seen me before. And I'll be with you in an even more tangible way than I have been. But they don't quite understand what he's talking about. They're very confused. So if we're confused, it's okay. We're, we're in good company with the disciples. They don't understand what he's, what he's saying. So he explains to them in verse 20, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So Jesus' explanation to them is, it's going to get really bad for you. You will weep and lament, and the world will be happy about it. That's, that's, that's a dark prediction. If Jesus could show up to you and say anything to you right now, and this is what he gave you, hey, there's a time coming in your future where you will weep and lament, and everyone around you will rejoice that that's happening. You would be crushed, right? I would feel so scared. That's coming for me? This is what Jesus says to them. You will weep and you will lament. And I think what he's ultimately referring to is his death. There will be an immense wave of sorrow that comes for the disciples and at the very same time, the world will rejoice. The world rejoices at the crushing of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't leave them hanging for very long. He gives them something amazing right, out, right on the heels of this statement. Something very ironic that even though the world rejoices at the crushing of Jesus, ultimately Christians rejoice more at the crushing of Jesus because of what it brings us. You will weep and you will lament, but that sorrow will turn into joy, is what he says. He doesn't say that sorrow will be followed by joy or replaced with joy. That would be a nice thing though, right? To, to, to have the assurance that, okay, it's gonna be bad for a while, but eventually things will improve. That's comforting, that's nice, but it's not what he says. He doesn't say that joy is going to be replacing sorrow. He doesn't say that you'll have sorrow for a little bit and then after that, you'll have joy. He's not communicating something in sequence. He's trying to communicate something productive. He's trying to say that your, your sorrow will actually produce joy. It won't just come after. 
The sorrow will be productive. You're not expecting this. But the very same thing that produces your pain will produce your joy. And then Jesus uses an analogy, a really powerful analogy. He talks about childbirth. He says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Now, I've never had a baby before, but I, I, uh, I've watched it and I've heard people talk about it. So I know that it's painful. I can't imagine the wave of pain that comes over a woman when her hour has come to deliver. I can't imagine the fear, um, the terror, the anxiety that comes as pain is just entering. I, 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 I think a little bit of like, what, what, what must have Eve, the very first woman, have thought when she entered labor? She was told that childbirth would be painful, but she had no one to walk with her to be like, okay, here's how it's going to go. Here's what's going to happen. That must have been horrifying. But Jesus communicates something really interesting through this metaphor. He says, when childbirth goes, goes the way that it was originally intended, that a woman goes through labor and eventually gives birth to a baby, what happens is what brought her sorrow, all of the pain of childbirth, is now, has now been the very thing that has produced a great joy in her life, which is a human being. There's something very, we, we, we often call it the magic of childbirth, right? That there's something about this process that is the most painful thing we can go through as humans, well, not we, <laughs> women can go through, and yet, it produces the most beautiful blessing, a human being. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, all of that sorrow has produced a great joy. So much so that women will choose to do it again, willingly, to say, I know that was hard. I know it was excruciatingly painful, but I love this child. The sorrow produced joy. Joy didn't just come on the heels of sorrow. It, as you look back on the process, it was the sorrow that brought the joy. And Jesus is saying to us, that his, to his disciples, your sorrow will turn into joy. The death of Jesus, the cross of Christ, will produce abundant joy for the disciples. The very thing that produced pain and sorrow and fear and weeping and lamenting at the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit, in that moment, they will remember and recognize, actually, the cross is our greatest source of joy. That sorrow wasn't meaningless. It produced something. It produced the greatest joy possible, that we could be saved from our sins. Amen. The cross is the source of ever-increasing joy for God's people. You see a bit of it here with the disciples. They get a taste of the joy at the resurrection. They get an even greater degree of joy at the coming of the Holy Spirit. And an even fuller degree, an even greater measure of joy is coming for us when Jesus returns, all because of the cross and what he's done. This is the power of the gospel. If, if God can do this with the cross, if he can take something so dark and so sorrowful and produce joy through it, if he can do that with the cross, imagine what else he could do that with. Your shameful past. 
filled with decisions that you wish with every fiber of your being you could go back and change because you're ashamed of them. What could this God produce through that? Could he not use those very decisions to, in his grace, produce something beautiful? Produce a testimony to a God of grace. Your bad and unwise decisions that you've made, could he not use those very things to produce something that gives glory to God? Through your own limitations or disabilities, could not God use those very things that maybe for you have been a source of pain and sorrow as something that produces joy? Or your own failures, or your pain, or your sorrow. If God can do that with the cross, there's nothing he can't do that with. In Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. He says this, this beginning part might be familiar to you. Jesus says this, it's kind of his mission statement in the book of Luke. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then a couple verses later says this, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This is the power of the gospel to take the darkest, most broken, most ugly, most painful things and not just push them aside and give something better, but use those very things to produce something beautiful and joyful all through the redemptive work of the cross. Some of you have experienced that in your stories. The very sources of pain for you have become now one of the fountains of joy in your life one of the greatest testaments to God's goodness and grace in your life. Some of you have experienced that before. So much so that you've said to the Lord, Lord, I'll do it again. I'll walk through it again if that's what you have for me because I know the God that you are. To transform sorrow into joy. Some of you haven't seen it, but you will. You might not see it here on earth, but I promise you, the scriptures promise you that you will see it. Because when we get to heaven, Jesus still has his scars on his body. We don't just forget everything we went through on planet earth when we enter into the new kingdom as if it just doesn't matter anymore. No, we will now have eyes to see the story that God was writing and how he used all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the brokenness for good and for his glory, one day we will see if we haven't yet. We can bank on that. So Jesus says to them, your sorrow is coming, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He continues and tells them this in verse 22, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, in the midst of promising that sorrow is coming, he says, there will be 
a joy that comes from that sorrow, and that joy cannot be taken from you by anyone. Everything else we have in life can be taken from us. No matter how precious it is to us, it could be taken from us in a moment. But Jesus says, I am giving you a joy that cannot be taken from you. I don't know about you, but I'd like to know more about that joy. If you're saying it's something that cannot be taken from me, tell me more about it. I want to know. That sounds good. No? Nobody? Amen? Okay. <laughs> I think he points to, I'm just going to highlight four with the rest of our time, four, four pieces of this joy. And all of these are purchased by the cross of Christ. Every one of these is, is directly tied to what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit applies these truths to us. The first aspect of this joy that Jesus tells his disciples and tells us is that we will have access to God. Look at what he says in verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. This is another reason, by the way, why I think he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and not his resurrection. Because after Jesus rose from the dead, they still have lots of questions for him. But in that day, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will ask nothing of me. You, the, the, the Spirit will be the one that guides you into truth. You will ask nothing of me. Truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, until this moment, you've asked nothing of the Father in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Then he says in verse 26, in that day, you will ask the Father, in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus is telling his disciples, part of this joy is that you will have direct access to God the Father. That access will come through my name, but you yourself will be able to speak directly to God the Father. And that that will be a source of joy for you, I hope so. So the question is, on, on what basis does God hear us when we talk to him? On what basis does God hear our prayers? This is a really important question. On what basis does God hear prayers? There's a lot of different ideas and opinions. Does he, does he hear our prayers on, on the basis of our sincerity? Of how, how genuine we are, how sincere we prove ourselves to be, so that he sees, oh, I really mean it this time? Does he hear our prayers on the basis of how many words we say to him? Like if I can express myself well enough or eloquently enough or use enough words to eventually convince God to listen to me, then he will? Does he hear it on the basis of certain words, like magic words? As long as I mention Jesus' name or I mention something about the cross or I just say, God, I need your help, then he has to listen to me? Does he hear our prayers on the basis of repetition? Like I gotta say it enough times? Does he, does he hear our prayers on the basis of our merit and our earning? To where if I've had a good day of following God and not doing all of those bad things that he's more likely to hear my prayers than on the days where I, I, I go after things that I know probably I shouldn't? On what basis does God hear prayers? Here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us it's only through the blood of Jesus that he hears prayers. 
It is only through the merit of Jesus Christ that anyone is able to have access to God. That's, that's what God tells us. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. You should know this verse because it's in our vision statement. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How is it that those that have no access to God can now be brought near to have access to God? Through the blood of Jesus. He continues a couple verses later in verse 18. For through him, through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, everyone together who believes, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So on what basis does God hear prayers? It is only through the blood of Jesus. It is only those that come underneath the blood of Jesus that are washed by his blood, that come on his merit and not their own. Only those. That's how we come and have access to God. There's an old preacher's story. I, don't, I literally don't know if it's true, but I've heard it several times. And even if it's not true, it's a good, it's a good tale, so I'll share it with you anyways. The story goes like this. is uh, During the Civil War, there's a soldier who is in battle and just has a horrific day. On the very same day, he loses both his brother and his father in battle. And he sits and reflects at the end of the day and realizes he has a younger sister and a mom at home on the farm and no one to take care of them and help them. And so he realizes, I need to get back home to be with them. And the only person that can pardon him is the president. And so he gets permission to go visit the president to plead his case. As he shows up to the steps of the White House, he's met with a soldier on guard who stops him in his tracks and says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm here to see the president to plead my case. And the guard says to him, absolutely not. You, you are not allowed to come visit the president. He's a busy man. Get back to war. Get back to battle where you belong. And the man turns away and goes away sad. He finds a, a park bench and he sits down. And who comes up next to him is this little boy. This little boy comes and sits next to the soldier who sees, he's very sad. And he says, why are you so sad, soldier? And the soldier starts to share his story with this boy telling him the ways he's lost his brother and his father in the same day, the situation back home. And the little boy looks at the soldier and he says, I can help you. The soldier doesn't quite know what he means, but the little boy grabs his hand and they start walking back towards the White House. And as they're walking towards the White House, they walk right past that very same guard who initially stopped this man a few moments earlier. He doesn't say a word to them. They walk right up to the front gate, into the doors, and he walks right in. They walk past all the generals and all different officials and no one says a single word to this soldier and this boy. This boy leads a soldier right up to the very door of the Oval Office and doesn't even knock, walks right in. President Abraham Lincoln looks up and he says, Todd, my son, introduce me to your friend. To which the boy says, Daddy, this man needs your help. And he shares his story with Abraham Lincoln and in that moment gets his pardon and is able to go home. In that story, we see a picture of what it looks like to have access to God. That soldier did not have the merit to have access to the president, but he came through means of the son. That son had access to his dad, and he brought this man with him. It is the same for us in accessing God himself. We have no rights. We have no merit to access him. 
but for those that will come with Jesus, through the merit of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, he says, come. You have access. This is what Jesus is saying, that you will have access to God the Father. You will be able to speak to him directly, not through your own merits, but through mine. In other words, prayer is a family privilege. Here's what one theologian says. God does not promise to hear the prayers of anyone who comes to him in any way, but through faith in the person and work of his beloved son. It is those who come to God trusting in the person and work of Jesus who has access to him. It is not those who come, who come to God through the person or sincerity of following Buddha. It is not those who come through the name of Muhammad. It is not those who come to God through the merits of their own kindness or their own goodness. It is only to those who come through the person and work of Jesus. One more theologian says it this way. To not pray in Jesus' name is to conceal the necessity of his atoning death and faith in him as the only ground of approach to God. To come to him in any other name is to suggest that there are other ways to God and that God will accept the prayer of those who do not know Christ as their Savior. But Christless prayer is godless prayer, however pious or holy it may sound. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. Can God answer the prayers of unbelievers? Sure. Sure he can. But access to God is not a universal human right. It is a purchased privilege. Access to God is not a universal human right. It is a purchased privilege for those that believe. The invitation is as inclusive as it gets. Anyone may come, but the means by which you come are exclusive. It's only through the person and work of Jesus. I sometimes, maybe you've experienced this before if you're a follower of Jesus, but I sometimes as a pastor kind of get like, I, I, I'm always asked to pray. No matter where I am, if it's like a, just a, a random meal, if it's just hanging out with friends, if, so, if there's a moment where someone needs to pray and I'm there, everyone's like, well, you're the pastor, so you should pray, right? I, I sometimes get teased in that regard of like, I mean, you're the one that's got the direct line to God. You're the pastor. Maybe you've experienced this, just maybe if you're the only Christian in, in a circle of friends, like, well, if we're gonna pray, you're, you're gonna be the one to do it. And I, and I used to hate that. But the more I've sat with that, I've learned to embrace that, that there is actually something amazing about that privilege of, 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 of having access to God, of someone looking to you and being like, well, we know that you know him. So will you pray for us? Gladly. Yes. That, that's a privilege for us as followers of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are all welcome. There's no one with more access to secret rooms or secret areas or secret authority. No, we all have access through the blood of Jesus, those that will believe. And so Christian, you have access to God the Father. But not only that, you have welcomed access to God in a way that no one else does. You need to listen to this. 
You as a Christian have access to God in a way that no one else does. The Lord promises to hear your prayers in a way he never once promises to hear the prayers of those that do not know him and will not come to him in the name of Jesus. I know that this kind of maybe shatters some categories for us for a little bit because we think, well, anybody can pray. Yes, anyone can pray. God can hear the prayers of anyone and answer any prayer he wants to, but he promises that he will hear the prayers of his people. He promises that you, Christian, have access to him through the blood of Jesus. This ought to completely change our approach to prayer. It ought to change it from a duty to a delight. It ought to be a source of joy for us to recognize what an honor I have as a Christian. I have access to God And when I read the Bible, I see the abundant stories of the miraculous things that God does. And he's the same God today that he has been, always and forever. I get to talk to that God. He actually welcomes me to come and speak to him. Are you serious? What a privilege. What a privilege. That's not not just something we have to do. That's something we get to do in a way nobody else can. Your Father in heaven welcomes you to come and talk to him and to ask him anything. And he says, Jesus says in verse 24, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. A prayerless Christian is a joyless Christian. There is joy waiting for you in talking to the Lord. So that's just one. Second one is this, love of the Father. One, you'll have access to the Father. Two, the Father will love you. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. For the Father, so he says, you will ask, you will ask him in my name. You'll be able to talk to him. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So despite the hatred of the world, the Father in heaven will actually love you. What a wondrous mystery that is. There is no one that has a claim on the love of God. There's no one that deserves the love of God. As much as everyone in our world would like to tell you that because you're just inherently good, God must like you and love you and listen to you, that's not true, biblically. No one earns the love of God. Only Jesus has access to it. He is the one who deserves it and earns it forever. And through the cross, through the gospel, Jesus takes what we deserve, the wrath of God, and gives us what only he deserves, the love of God. So much so that he tells us, the Father loves you. God loves you. You say, well, of course he does. People have been telling me me that my whole life. Doesn't God love everybody? Yeah, God does does love everyone. But does God love everybody the, the same? I think when we read the Bible, the answer is no. God loves his own with a kind of love that's different a saving love, a covenant love, a promising love, a sacrificial love. Yes, God loves the world, but he loves his own with a greater measure of love. You see it all over the Bible. In Ephesians chapter two, we are told that because of the great love with which God loved us, he saved us. 
We're told even in the next chapter, in John chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray, and he's going to say, I don't pray for everyone. I pray for my disciples. I pray for my own. I pray for the church. That's a greater degree of love. Or in Ephesians 1, we are told that in love, God predestined us to be adopted. God loves his own with a different type of love. It is a ever-enduring, covenant-saving kind of love. Jesus says, the Father loves you. Why? Why does he love you? Is it just because he made you? No, it's a very specific reason. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed in me. And we were also told a few chapters earlier, how are we able to love God? Well, because he has been the one that has first loved us. So Jesus is saying, not only do you have access to God, but this same Father, the way he loves me, he will love you. Why? Because you believe. Because you believe in who he is and who I am and the gospel work that I've done. Despite the hatred of the world, you're going to have the love of the Father on you. A couple more. He also tells us this, a part of this joy is that we will have a salvation that is secure. In verse 32, he says, an hour is coming when you will be scattered and you will leave me alone. Essentially saying, all of you will abandon me. In your sin, you will run away from me to protect yourself, but it won't thwart the plans of God. He says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He's telling them that nothing you do will hinder the plan of God. Your salvation is going to happen. It's secure, despite your sin. And the last one is this, in verse 33, that we will have peace and courage despite tribulation. Our faith will come at a cost. We should expect that. But Jesus says, in me, you will have peace. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Literally means take courage. I have overcome the world. One of your sources of joy will be that you know the future. You know the furthest piece of future. You know the most sure piece of future, and it's this, that Jesus will overcome the world. And so you can have peace. You can have courage in the midst of sorrow, anxiety, tribulation. You can be anchored because you know the future. You know what Jesus will eventually do. He has overcome and he will overcome the world. Which one of these do you need to sit with most? These pieces of joy. Is it access to God through prayer? Is it the love of the Father for you? Is it that your salvation is secure despite your sin? Is it this sense of peace and courage no matter what happens? I find it so comforting that in the midst of this whole section, in the midst of describing all the tribulation and the sorrow that's to come, Jesus gives two commands, and here's what they are. Ask and take courage. That's so comforting because both of those are ultimately not about me. They're about him. Ask the Father anything. Take courage that I have overcome. In the midst of everything, ask and take courage. Let's pray together.